Blog Talk Radio. Section 
as they introduce themselves. Then we'll go to a discussion, what's going on in our world and community. Then we'll deal with our theme for tonight. So in that order, that's the way we're going to proceed. Again, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Africa on the Move. So let's get party, get started with this party. We start off with, let's start off with Brother Moses this time. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism in a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. Let's go from Brother Moses to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, G.C., Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we bring in Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother, <clears throat> Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Hackey Kamati Mishoki. Kind of with African awareness, and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. And let me just explain briefly an article I read, which I found very interesting, which sort of underscores why it's so important in the African community to have viable uh, institutions. Recently, the Orange Minister nominated a guy by the name of Stephen Menachi to Second Circuit Bench. And Menachi, a white nationalist, argues, and I quote, ethno-nationalism remains the common and accepted feature of liberal democracy, end quote. Ethno-nationalism maintains loyalty to one's group as a guiding principle of human beings. Interestingly enough, the concept does not take into consideration the implicit threat of racism. The implicit, excuse me, the implicit threat of racism. In Israel, for example, the Beta Israel, the Ethiopian Jews, or the original Jews, are discriminated against not because of their Jewishness, but the color of their skin. Obviously, ethno-nationalism subjectively determines who's in the in-group, who's on the out. Uh, the notion that an ethnic group's biases cannot exist within the group is total folly. Menashe's real motivation is to legitimize racism by popularizing the notion humans are incapable of thinking, but are victims of unexplained impulses governing their every move. Now, if Republicans appoint people like this to the judicial bench, is it realistic to assume the Constitution will be interpreted in a colorblind or a, or a fear class bias? Institutions of African community must again address this quintessential question. What are we to do when law becomes lawless? So without institutions to clarify that question, there's no way feasible for us to move forward as a people in the face of all kind of adversity. So institutions are indispensable in terms of our fight for justice and our fight for longevity in the society. So we have to have institutions. I encourage everybody to get about the business of actually building institutions in the African community. Thank you, Brother Hachi. And to my parents and listening audience, like always, we welcome you to participate and join us by calling 323-679-0841. 
323-679-0841. Let's get started with our party. When we talk about what's going on in your world community, Brother Anthony, what do you have to share with us today? Okay, a uh, couple of things, uh, sadly. Now, in fact, let me start with uh, a second. Before, Anthony, can I put your own pause for a second? Before we go into that, let's go to a little special acknowledgement. Let's talk a little bit about a very significant freedom fighter, revolutionary that just recently made a transition, Brother Robert Mugabe, and give our due respects to him. So, panelists, let's talk about Brother and Brother Robert Mugabe and what he meant to our people and to the overall struggle and movement of our people. I'll start out with you, Brother Anthony. Certainly. Uh, Throughout his political career, uh, he was a staunch advocate of Pan-Africanism and uh, the liberation of Zimbabwe. And he he was in the leadership of uh, the Zimbabwe African National Union uh, during a very, very critical period in Zimbabwe's history. When it was struggling against uh, settler colonialism under the, uh, uh, the uh, regime of Ian Smith. And, uh, and uh, the Africans made tremendous sacrifices in order to get, uh, you know, genuine independence. They got nominal independence in 1980, and uh, they struggled to try to get control of the land for the masses of African workers. And uh, and because of this, Zimbabwe was uh, was uh, isolated, and um, you know and um, you know boycotted by and uh, sanctioned by Britain and the U.S. Who reneged on the Lancaster House Agreement, which bought Zimbabwe uh, nominal independence. Uh, his contribution was he was a staunch advocate for African unity and for a reform of uh, the UN so that the majority of the world's people actually had a voice in their own affairs. Thank you, Brother Andrew. Brother Haki, how do you see the latest here, Brother Robin Mugabe? Yeah, you know, Brother Africa, <clears throat> a lot of people would um, – particularly in the Western press, would characterize Robert Mugabe as a, as a despot or a tyrant. The, the bottom line is this, Brother Africa. The situation in Africa is very, very um, horrific. Uh, one of the things, when we look at legacy in terms of colonialism in Africa, we understand the miseducation of Africans has played a, a decisive role in terms of forming all kinds of confusion on the continent. So as a consequence, one of the things, when you have leaders with positions of clarity, uh, to lead their people, uh, sometimes what happens is that given given that reality, given the 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 the, 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 the acumen, the, the division that these leaders have, uh, in terms of fulfilling you know Africa's destination, sometimes it seems that these leaders have to remain in power for a long period of time. Uh, to give you an example, uh, Tanzania, uh, Julius Nereri, um Baba Nereri, uh he did his his term and uh, as the president of Tanzania, and he left. Well, when he left, all those things, all those uh, things that he fought for, uh, all those policies, uh, all those institutions that he sought to build, was 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 dismantled. 
uh, people who, who replaced uh, Barry, uh, President uh, Nairi uh, didn't have his acumen, didn't have an understanding in terms of colonialism, who, who were therefore manipulated by the West to, to essentially um, re-energize a, a system that's not only oppressive, but a system that uh, does the continent no good at all. But nonetheless, having a lack of understanding, lack of clarity, these African leaders proceeded to allow themselves to become part of a system which is across the board adversely opposed to their very survival. So this is what happens when leaders of positions of acumen, positions of, of clarity, uh, when they step down in Africa. So I don't, man, I'm not, I'm not advocating that anybody should be a despot or, or a tyrant. But the bottom line is the situation in Africa is very, very unique. So, and, and the question is, you know, uh, you know, what do you lose, you know, when you get these these leaders, African leaders with with acumen, with experience, with history. Uh, once you once you once you lose them and other people from positions of power, they don't have the same understanding in terms of the, the magnitude of the struggle, and as a consequence, are more apt to be manipulated by the West. And that's precisely what's happening in Africa. So it's a very difficult situation for Africa, uh, you're given this reality. So all I can say is about Jesus, I mean, uh, um, excuse me, Mugabe, is that you know he you know he fought he fought a good fight. I mean, he understood clearly who the enemy was. I mean, he really fought a good fight. And in doing so, you know, he created all kinds of enemies in the West. But that is to be expected because one of the things we're very clear on that imperialism so desired is the absolute control of Africa. And so long as you have African leaders who capitulate, uh, then you're going to have problems in Africa in terms of underdevelopment and exploitation of its people. So Robert Mugabe sort of underscored the importance in terms of having quality African leadership who understands what imperialism what it seeks to do, and how it operates. Because without that firm understanding in terms of how it operates, Africa will remain in deep trouble. So Robert Mugabe should be um, all hats off Robert Mugabe in terms of the principal stand that he took in his fight in terms of the empowerment of Zimbabwe, ultimately the continent of Africa. So my hats off to Brother Robert Mugabe, and hopefully there will be more Robert Mugabe's to, ri- to rise up and uh, Zimbabwe to lead the people forward, ultimately lead the continent forward in terms of its destination. Thank you, Brother Haki. And Brother Moses, how do you view the legacy of Brother Robert Mugabe? Well, as Bob Marley said in Zimbabwe, soon we'll find out who the real revolutionaries are. This is when the the inauguration of of Zimbabwe. And um, I I think Robert Mugabe was a revolutionary and that uh and naturally, you know, like so many revolutionaries, uh when when you take a stand and you stand firmly, you're gonna make a lot of enemies, uh, because the because the imperialist powers are international and they control vast amounts of resources and and so they're able to sway public opinion with all the media outlets and etc. But I think you know, Zimbabwe was uh, liberated and uh, and that, that there's nothing to ever take that away from him. Uh um he was part of that, that solution. And um uh, I don't know, down through the years, you know, the the struggle is only intensified and uh, you know, like Fidel Castro and so many others um, you know the 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 bourgeoisie is gonna you know demonize you, and so you know we expect that. 
I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Speaking of that, Brother Moses, to the panelists, I'm just wondering, you know, each time when we lose one of our freedom fighters, you know, others try to control the narrative. What can we do to make sure that Brother Robert Garvey's legacy will be presented in a way that reflects the reality of what it was? How do we control the narratives of of our freedom fighters as they make that transition? What can we do that we are not doing? Uh, we have to educate our people to the truth, and that those of the, those of us who are Pan Africans and revolutionaries, we must hope, uphold the revolutionary essence that our freedom fighters uh, taught us, and uh, we must control the narrative. Uh, that's the that's the bottom line. I think is critical. We cannot allow other people to tell our story. We have to, you know, tell our own, record our own history. Because, uh, let's see, because a lot of our uh, progressive or revolutionary leadership has been demonized uh, by, uh, by the capitalist media throughout history. Going back as far as uh, Jean-Jacques Desalines. And uh, up into the present day And uh, people that uh, pr- propose an alternative to the capitalist system Are always subject to that demonization Yeah, well, I, I think I, I think I concur I, I think that one of the things we have to engage in Is discourse with those individuals in the African community Who are progressive in terms of probably understanding the role Robert Mugabe played. Uh, one of the things is that, of course, we understand the sectoral nature of critical lines that sometimes people misunderstand in terms of the, in terms, in terms of interpretation of history. And apt to see Robert Mugabe as something other than a, a noble hero in terms of aspirations of the African continent. So we have to have that kind of discuss, discourse, that kind of discussion around, you know, the role and importance in terms of Robert Mugabe and all that he uh, epitomized in terms of a movement forward you know, the African continent for African people throughout the diaspora. So I think um, in addition to the discourse in terms of, um, you, know, the, um, you know, the various sectors in the, in the political world in the African community, also the question in terms of just generally whenever you get the opportunity to talk about his legacy, to, to, his, to, his, you know, to talk about his legacy, to espouse his greatness, to get people to understand, you know, there's more, one way, more than one way to look at a particular phenomenon. Uh, of course, we understand the Western media is very, very powerful. And, you know, building in terms of whitewashing uh, people's thoughts uh, is very, very good. It's, I mean, very, very, it's outstanding. So we understand that the challenge is huge, but it's one less we have to undertake in terms of, you know, uh, bringing some clarity in terms of precisely, you know, what Robert Mugabe represent not only to African people throughout the world, but also the history of humanity or the potential, uh, or the potential for humanity, you know, throughout the world. So clearly, uh, we had a work cut out for us, but we got to have that discourse in terms of uplifting uh, the prominence that uh, Robert Mugabe uh, uh, swayed when it came when it comes to the issue of African empowerment throughout the world. Okay, you know, panelists, one of the things I think about um, Brother Mugabe's legacy, I think about how he was a good example of resistance, and he was able to at least articulate and. Deal with an issue that most 
if not all the countries that has been colonized don't want to deal with, and that's the question of the land question. Who had a right for owning the land? Just by his act of addressing the issue, it says a lot. What do you make of this whole question at some point in time? I think we all can learn from his experiences, the Zimbabwe experiences around how they deal with and dealing with the land question in terms of trying to find a way how do you appropriate the land back to the rightful owners? So I just thought that's one of the most important I thought that's one of the most important aspects that the African revolution has to resolve. And we can't be uh you know, um you know, it's it's a question we can't continue to dodge. I know it's now also beginning to be raised somewhat in the Zanium, but this is a question throughout the Africa and the African diaspora around looking at this land question. Because the West has a history of going to places, taking stuff, and then talking about let's renegotiate. By the way, I'd just like to get y'all speak to the, uh, what I thought that's one of the most important lessons that we can look at and learn from because it got to be resolved. Y'all response, Brother Anthony. Yes, uh, that is correct. Uh, Malcolm X taught us that land is the basis of all independence, and that's true. And also, and also, all of your all of your resources come from your land base, your food, clothing, shelter, etc. So the land question is absolutely critical. And uh, one of the things that history has taught us to this point that it cannot be resolved non-antagonistically. It's going to take armed struggle, and it takes organization uh, in order for that struggle to triumph because the enemy is is very powerful and well-organized and, and has weapons at its disposal, weapons of uh, a tr- tremendous mass destruction. And uh, and uh, we can take a lesson from what our uh, Palestinian comrades are going through with uh, Zionism today, and uh, that is ultimately a struggle about control of land. And uh, so uh, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice, and above all. Uh, a very high level of organization. Yeah, well, I think I think that one of the things we have to acknowledge is that you know uh, um, um, Robert Mugabe actually tried to facilitate the process uh, involving the West in terms of ensuring the redistribution of land to the African to the African people. Uh, of course, the West reneged on that, particularly the U.S. and, and the U.K. They reneged on the agreement in terms of financing those those. Uh, uh, those land acquisitions to return to ensure the land will return to African people. Also, uh, clearly, Robert Mugabe learned that you should never trust the West, and not trusting the West, you have to understand there is no smooth transition in terms of the question in terms of land ownership. I think one of the problems, specifically when we talk about Zimbabwe and South Africa, and we talk about this this attempt in terms of trying to appease the situation in terms of land ownership, I think it's not going to work. I think there's no smooth way to do that, and I think we have to understand that's a core reality. Uh, we're up against a, a, a brutal history 
in which the land was taken, I mean, hundred, I mean, millions and millions of acres of land was stolen from the people. And so though in turn became that land, it's no easy, easy feat. And so for us to delude, delude ourselves and believing that it can be a smooth transition is to be absurd. Uh, it's simply a question that has to be done. I think, um, you know, Robert McGann understood that, you know, that it has to be done, even though the process wasn't perfect in terms of the distribution of land uh, or return the land to African people. Nonetheless, the process has been done. And so, of course, because it, it's a process, and of course, there is, it's open to interpretation and people debate, you know, how can better, how we can better do it going forward. But the, more importantly, the process has started. That is the most important thing. Uh, it's, in, in, in South Africa, I think the, the situation is more in the phase of somebody talking about the idea in terms of returning the land to African people. Because I think many of the African leaders' position is that in South Africa's position is that, well, you know, we can we can make this process very, very smoothly. And one thing is very, very clear: when you look in terms of the the, the Boer and uh, the the other white uh, the other white racists uh, in South Africa, their position is very very clear. You know, they're they're talking about going returning to the to the to the to the uh, uh, to the to the, to the woods, actually uh, talking about fighting, you know, the, the African masses in terms of maintaining ownership of the land. So their position is very very clear on that point. For the African leadership to keep on running this line, in fact, you know, the transition will be smooth. Sort of discount. The reality is that you got a lot of racists who've been racist for a long, long time, and to think that somehow they can magically transform into something that's non-racist, I think is absurd. So, given that reality, then you have to understand that it's going to be that this process in terms of returning land to African people is going to be messy. Uh, as there going to be some mistakes are going to be made. That's that's true. But more importantly, the process has to begin. So, I think Mugabe sort of underscores the necessity in terms of getting this process process moving. Now, to some extent, the, the guy that currently got in power, Managua, um, you know, his position is that, based upon my understanding in terms of what I've been reading, uh, his position is somewhat uh, lukewarm. In other words, I think he's more inclined in terms of after returning, returning a lot of that land to the, to the, to, to, to the colonial uh, individuals, you know, who stole the land in the first place. So clearly, if he, in fact, proceeds in doing that, then I expect that African people will return to the, to the, to the forest, to the woods, whatever you want to call it, uh, in terms of re, you know, in terms of uh, uh, reinvigorating that struggle in terms of you know their complete uh, um, um, freedoms. Um, so I think that you know Marvin Mugabe was was will be remembered for the fact that he uh, he did start to question in terms of land in terms of trying to you know get that return that land to the original inhabitants. So I think if that's nothing else, then he should be remembered probably you know for the stand that he took in terms of trying to address the issue in terms of uh, dispossess, specifically when it comes to the land question in Zimbabwe. Okay, Pam, that's what we're going to do right now. Uh, this is a salute to our brother. Rest in peace. Child, well done. You will always live forever because you always be the minds and hearts of our people because we know you served them very well, our brother Robert Okabe. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a break, pause for the cause, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. You'll listen to Africa on the Move.
To what I uh, to, to what I to the, what I read, the casualties uh, in the Bahamas from uh, Hurricane Dorian have increased. It's up to about uh, for, uh, forty-three persons uh, last last I read, 
and uh, and there's tremendous devastation in the northern part of the Bahamas. So uh, you know, so sympathies and uh, prayers go out to the uh, to to, uh, to the to the people uh, li- li- living, you know, in, in the Bahamas, particularly that uh, you know the uh, uh, the masses of working people that live there year round. Also, uh, let's see. Uh, I read an article which indicated that. Um, that the police officer that shot Tamir Rice a few years ago had uh, got hired as a policeman in another jurisdiction. Repeat that point again, Brother Anthony. Yeah, uh, the the police officer that uh, that that killed Tamir Rice. Uh, mm-hmm. The African youth that was playing in it and in, in his uh, in in his uh, backyard a few years ago, he uh, the officer uh, he got another job as a policeman in another jurisdiction. Hmm, I'm so surprised. Wow, I hear you. Hi, right, brother Anthony. I'd like to thank you for your update on what's going on in your world community. We'll make, next make the transition to Brother Hockey. Brother Hockey, what's going on in your world and the community? Yeah, a couple of things. First, African Awareness, we're doing a solidarity tour to Cuba. Uh, this trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. And uh, for more information, we ask people to give us a call at 804-549-7492 or early code 202-714-9435 or, me, or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, Number two at gmail.com. Of course, we encourage people to go to Cuba for themselves and see exactly what Cuba is all about. Uh, the second thing, Brother Africa, is that, you know, recently, you know, I read an article where, um, you know, uh, a, a very famous uh, preacher actually renounced certain practices in the Christian church. And I find this very, very extraordinary. Uh, the, pop, the thing is that rarely do we find preachers who stand up and speak honestly in terms of, you know, how religion has been used to essentially manipulate people. But this particular guy I did, his name was Benny Heen. He's a Christian televangelist and a faith healer. And he decided to abandon the prosperity gospel. Now, this notion, the prosperity gospel is this notion that the creator wants pastors to be wealthy, uh, <clears throat> which, according to Benny Heen, doesn't exist in the Bible. Now, thinking back to colonial America, you know, enslavers would pay African preachers money provi- provided sermons, stressed the importance of accepting one's enslavement and uh, receiving of just desserts in the afterlife. Now, Hume's belief that the gospel is not for sale is in keeping with Africans who established harsh words, some of the brush harbors uh, during times of shadow slavery in the United States, uh, utilizing which, in which these, oh, these, oh, excuse me, these, these, these meetings were actually utilized to empower, not the suit of, of dollar bills. Now, these things, these, of course, these, um, excuse me, this is all done in secrecy. Now, these Africans understood that money had no place in current out the creator's commitment. Now, in renouncing, in renouncing prosperity gospel, Heen stands to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. If Heen can give up hundreds of millions of dollars yearly salary, then surely the poor can give up the nefarious notion paying tithes to churches will get them into heaven. So I, I applaud Benny Heen for actually standing up and let people know that it's not about the salvation, it's not about the, the, the attainment of money and materialism. 
but it's about doing that which is right. So, I, I, you know, my hand, my applause to Benny Hinn, like to stand up and acknowledge that the things that he's done in the past were not correct, and uh, to to tell the world that he's changing, you know, his uh, way in terms of, you know, ministering you know, to his congregation. So, my hat's off to him. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, there's been a lot going on, but I, I thought I'd give a second to to our president, uh, this Donald Trump, uh, and his weather predictions, uh, predicting that the storm would go to Alabama and producing a map that he had hand-drawn in a, a, a boundary for the storm and... Uh, and then he said he didn't know who threw it in there. Yeah. I mean, it's just been it's, it's unbelievable that right in front of the whole world, this guy can come up with all this this incredible uh, ignore the scientific community and assert whatever he wants to assert, and he's determined that there's not going to be socialism in the U.S. of A. And, you know, obviously, Robert Mugabe's and Fidel Castro's and, and Chavez, all all those people would be, you know, extreme uh, terrorists uh, uh, and uh, demonized in any, any way possible uh, by Trump and any people who like Trump. And so, you know, we're we're faced with a real problem here in the U.S. of A. And I thank you for this moment. Thank you. Thank you, Phil Moses. You know, um, hmm. this this issue of Donald Trump saying all kind of wild things, could it be something there, setting up a scenario where, as we often talk about, don't believe the matrix. They set the scenario up so all this confusion, he can do anything, and you don't know if he if it's real or not real. And that way, that's how they continue to rule back chaos. Panelists, y'all response to that? I think there's truth to that, Brother Africa. And, um, you know, just a follow-up to what... Uh, uh, Brother Robert was saying I had read an article That uh, the Republicans Were were were, uh, were In a show of unity Trying to ditch the primary Process entirely uh, Guaranteeing that Trump Would be the uh, Republican candidate uh, for, uh, for For next year's tw- uh, uh, Presidential election and uh, you know, and the thing about it though is, uh, you know, it seems like uh, you know a very crazy situation, and that uh, and that it, you know, at least uh, uh, campaigning gives people a chance to at least assess the issues that are at stake, and it seems like uh, you know the uh, the media's corporate media has turned into mere cheerleaders. For U.S. policy, and uh, there's no critical analysis of of what's going on inside the U.S. or around the world, for that matter, taking place. 
Okay. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Well, I I I I I think chaos is key. After all, when we talk about propaganda and its role, we understand it's nothing more than facilitating confusion in the minds of folks. To the extent that you can facilitate chaos, it's good for the ruling elite, and that's precisely what they want. As a matter of fact, one of the real ironies is that even despite all the lies that this guy consistently tells, uh, according to the latest poll, 70% of his base still support him. Now, if 70% of his base support him knowing he's a, he's, a, he's a pathological liar, then what does that say in terms of the base? What does that say in terms of the American character? So I think that this question in terms of chaos is a very, very good question. But I think more important about Africa, you know, I, I think that, you know, uh, we have to begin to understand in terms of why the chaos, why does it exist? Why would the moving class want chaos to exist? Well, if, in fact, you can keep people distracted, I think it's very, very easy, much easier, considerably easier to implement all kind of policies, you know, all kind of laws behind the scene in which people are totally unaware of. And so, therefore, those policies and those laws at some point can be used for the detriment of, or the further oppression of the people. And the people don't even know that these laws actually, these policies or laws actually exist. So chaos, spreading chaos serves a, a very strategic uh, uh, strategic uh, interest of the ruling class. So, so, I, so I think that, you know, one of the things, when we go back and look at it in terms of his, his, uh, his uh, candidacy, and we all understand that he wasn't selected by a popular vote. In other words, the masses of the American people didn't vote for Trump, I mean, in terms of, in terms of ensuring that he wins. He was selected by the Electoral College, which is an organized interest of individual, wealthy individuals, you know, at, on the state level, uh, who vote contrary to the interests of the people. So clearly, you know, uh, the people in the power understood the, what Trump represented, and so therefore they realized that he'd be the perfect person to carry out the agenda. And he's proven that to be true. Uh, everything that's reactionary, everything that's backwards, everything is hateful, he, he optimizes. So clearly... You know, he said the interests of the ruling class, and as long as he said that interest, he continue to remain president of the United States. My biggest concern is that, you know, um, you know, one of the things we talk about the disempowerment of, of or disenfranchisement of, of, of African voters in terms of African and people of color in terms of their ability to vote. When we think about this term, the systemic effort in terms of denying people the opportunity to vote, so, so suggests perhaps that uh, those people in positions of power want him to give a second term. Now, if, in fact, he gains a second term, and one thing is very, very clear, that things like Social Security, Medicaid, those things that people depend on, those things are out the window. So clearly, you know, uh, he served the interests of the ruling class, and the chaos is the best way to facilitate that. So nobody should deceive himself into believing that this man serves any other agenda other than the empowerment of the elite. Well, you know, one other point that I thought we raised earlier was a point there dealing with Tamara Rice uh, assassination that this police has been rehired by another department. Now, you know, earlier in one of their programs, we talked about how they say they don't keep statistics on who was the police from and how many people they shot or had these kind of engagements. But what do y'all make of um, what can be done if they outrightly shoot a child and there's no punishment and it goes to another force and do the same thing. What can be done to change the conditions where they will have some kind of fear if they continue to um, um, display that kind of 
attitude towards uh, African people, people who come from communities that are, are not properly served and represented. Well, um, I think we have to, you know, um, we 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 have to resort to what we what we did in the days when segregation was more open. Uh, right now, is largely, uh, you know, covert. But when it was more open, when we realized that the police didn't care about us, we protected ourselves. And uh, we or, we organized and protected ourselves by any means necessary. And we're going to have to get to that level of organization again. Uh, what is happening is that our enemies are taking advantage of our lack of organization. And uh, because we're, 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 we're disorganized as, as a people and, 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 we, and we lack any degree of unity, and we, you know, and we're not in a position to protect ourselves and our youth. People take advantage of that, especially the police. So we have to intensify our level of organization and political education, for that matter. Yeah, you know, one of the things, you know, just to sort of put the question, Brother Africa, is that, you know, when you talk about another locale uh, hiring somebody who killed a 12-year-old child, and then they turn around and hire them. You know, what do they say in terms of their respect for life? What do they say in terms of their respect for for justice? Uh, so for them to hire that police officer speaks values in terms of the kind of uh, racial insensitivity that exists in America. And and and, and you, I, I agree that unless you're talking about some serious organization in terms of confronting these wrongs, it's not going it's not going to stop. Uh, I think I agree with Brother Anthony. I think one of the things is that, you know, when we, we started talking about policing your own community and which minimize the need for terms of police departments, then certainly you can minimize these kind of killings that take place on a daily basis here in America. Uh, but I think that, you know, I think with the big picture, I think, you know, in terms of because it's countrywide, I think that we have to become extremely organized. And I think that this whole question in terms of fear, which sort of mitigates against us taking a stand, has to somehow be overcome. I don't know what it's going to take in terms of making people fed up, because uh, the thing is clear um, that the lack of disregard, uh, you know, toward you know, African life is well established in the society, and so we can anticipate as soon as the economy continues to deteriorate, we can anticipate even more African people losing their lives, you know, you know, about essentially a racist system which has no value in terms for African life. So clearly, you know, we have our work cut out for us, and we have to understand first and foremost that, you know, we, 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 we're in this system, and because it is a system, any time it does things which are disadvantageous toward our people, anything that's destructive toward our people, we have to understand fundamentally that we have the obligation to stand up and resist, to acquiesce, to go along with the system simply because it's part of a system and you, you're in that system. Simply to do that is, is tantamount to your own suicide. So it seems to me at some point our people have to begin to recognize that, you know, enough is enough. I think at the point we get to the point where enough is enough, that I think we have to kind of we create the kind of organization we need in terms of this kind of thing to continue happening in the African community. Yes, respond to that? What do you think, Brother Moses? Your thoughts? Oh, we had policemen after they have assassinated 
unjustly. It is bad. Should he name just children? Well, you know, this police officer uh, um, is is marketable in a a racist society. Uh, You know, he's he's there doing the job that they they want out of a police officer in this racist society. And uh, uh, until there's some kind of transformation of of the whole social order, the things are going to continue. uh, it's, it's, it's inevitable. It flows from the, the capitalist and pluralist mode of production and, and reproduction system. I'll leave it there. Thank you. But, but, you, but you know, Africa, Brother Africa, there, there is an irony. And that is that one of the things when we talk about the deterioration of the system, we're not just talking, and that's not how perfectly, we're not, we're not exaggerating. We're talking about really the system is deteriorating, not only nationally, but internationally. And, and the question for the terms of the ruling elite is how do you maintain power in place of a system that's deteriorating? Well, one of the things they have to do is they have to terrorize the masses of folks. How do you terrorize folks? Well, you kill them. If you kill them, you terrorize the hell out of them. And that is the whole point. This is, this is the point that African people have to begin to understand. That is precisely what they want. They want your power, and they want your afraid. That is what they want. And to the extent that we capitulate and we, we're afraid to even speak out about these kind of injustices, we actually, in a very bizarre kind of way, we actually reinforce more killing. So we're not doing something in favor by terms of being quiet or being silent or being frightened you know, by these kind of atrocities being inflicted against African people. So we really don't have any choice because we're in a situation, we're in the Catch-22. If we don't stand up against this, then we ensure that more killing of African people will take place. And this is this is this is giving the backdrop of you know a deteriorating economic system, and so when we talk about deteriorating economic system, one one thing is very very clear, you know, that if people understand the nature of the system as it deteriorates, then objectively people understand that the real enemy is not other poor people, but the real enemy is in fact a system of wealthy people or, or corporations who are responsible for the plight of humanity. That is the biggest fear that the ruling class has, which, why, which is why they support the police across the board. So no matter how many people they kill, it doesn't matter because they realize that they're there to protect them because it's just a question of time before people begin to realize, you know, that they are the adversary, that they are, in fact, the enemy. And so, therefore, this killing of African people, carte blanche, is something that the ruling class gives absolute support to because they understand, you know, African people can be used as, a, as, 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 as not only a, a whooping boy but also – because, you know, we you know, we can sort of send a message to others that, listen, if you step out of line, see what happened to those African people, this could happen to you. So keep your place. So clearly it's all about terrorizing the populace and so but We have to – we can no longer play that game. We have to stand up in, in face of adversity, even if that means, you know, there's a price to pay in terms of doing it. All right, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for this call. We're going to take a station break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss part three. Hey, I know we are not there with this. We're going to talk about, speaking about the state, terrorism field, we're going to talk about Brazil. What's going on in Brazil right now that the world needs to know? Well, Brazil is dominated by a large African population. And most brothers and sisters don't know. The only difference between us and them is they speak Portuguese and we speak English. So that's what we're going to talk about. Brazil, million protests. 
And when we come back, we'd like to have you, the audience, to join in with us at 323-679-0841. But let's pause for this cause, and we'll come back. We'll start on that theme. You're listening to Africa on the Move. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And you, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You know how we think Organize the hood under our ching banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I take a slug for the cause like Huey P While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live Able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help We do for self like ants in a colony Organize the wealth into a socialist economy A way of life based off the common needs And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed Shout out black male Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough so the rent always be late Can you relate? Living in a no more bondage no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live. In it, breathing it, it's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's the low for push ups now, many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Black male, live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male, and the people don't never get justice, and the women don't never get respected, and the problems don't never get solved, and the jobs don't never pay enough. So the rent always be late. Can you relate? We living in a police state. Welcome you back to Africa on the Move. 
what is a state? What is a state? And we're going to talk about the state. The state, we're going to talk about Brazil. That was an interesting article from Telezul, I believe, published on the 14th of June, 2019. It raised, raises many contradictions in terms of the reality, not only what's going on in Brazil, but I think it's a reflection in the hill and throughout the world when you talk about this whole question of dealing with liberalism. And the title of this article is Brazil Millions Protect Posario, Neoliberal Prison Pension Reform. And it seems like we heard this, this, this issue before about pension reforms and this question about people should take even their Social Security monies and invest them in stocks and, and allow individuals to, you know, to control it. So anyway, this article raises some interesting dynamics in terms of what's going on and the response by the people. Brother Anthony, when you read this article, one of the beautiful things about this article is the people are putting up a resistance. Can you give our listenership, uh, our listenership a backdrop on what is the fundamental contradiction in terms of why the people are resisting the so-called liberal pension reform and how that may also come, come to U.S. as well? where you have capitalist systems. Brother Anthony, give us your perspective um, from this particular article. Certainly. Well, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, just to give as way of background, was elected president of Brazil about uh, about a, a year or so ago, approximately. And uh, under mysterious circumstances, uh, because Lula da Silva was imprisoned at the time and was not allowed to run for president. But anyway, uh, Jair Bolsonaro and uh, he, in, in, in his political views, he's somewhat similar to Donald Trump, uh, just as a way of background. But anyway, he's proposing to privatize uh, Brazil's pension system. And also raised retirement age, uh, and uh, uh, you know, for uh, Brazilian workers to retire, and uh, and in protests, um, various workers across different sectors organized a general strike in several cities in Brazil and disrupted traffic. Uh, from the interior, interior of Brazil to the coastal cities in order to protest against Bolsonaro's uh, plan to privatize the pension system uh, mo- uh, on the model used by uh, Chile. And, uh, and the masses of Brazilians are against that. And this cut across all sorts of professional lines. Students, teachers, workers, uh, landless uh, workers, um, urban workers, etc. And uh, I think one of the things I took away from this article was the importance of of organization, being organized, that workers working together in their own interests can actually uh, shut down an oppressive system, or at least disrupted to keep it from functioning business as usual. 
And that's what I took away from this article. And I think, uh, and I think people should understand that the masses in Brazil are 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 are, are, are going through a lot of a lot of difficulties because of Bolsonaro's policies. He's hostile to the indigenous people and the African people, Africans living in Brazil. And uh, so, uh, so, so this trend is uh, is universal. It's not just unique to the U.S., but it does give some important lessons in terms of what can be done if people get organized in their own interests. Brother Haki, one of the things this article points out is the balkanization of society on one hand, but on the other hand, it's a positive aspect as well because at least the sectors do realize if they do not organize as a group, they'd be a lot more weaker. I thought it was interesting in terms of one of the groups that got together or front or one of the fronts that exists in Brazil is called People Without Feel Front. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Maybe we could use a kind of front inside the U.S. What do you think? I concur. Um, organization is key. Uh, you know, to the extent that we can negate sectarianism and move forward in terms of understanding that the desirability of destruction of the system is so important in terms of addressing human aspirations, uh, when we get to that point, then we're on our way in terms of creating a just and loving and fair society. But let me, before I, before I get back to that question, Brother Africa, one of the things I wanted, I just want to briefly touch upon, I think it's important that people understand. And when we talk about the rise of Bolsonaro, which was referred to him as a thing, uh, yes, he is pretty much, uh, it's very similar to Donald Trump in terms of, you know, his racism, his sensitivity, and his callousness. Uh, but what's interesting is, though, the reason why he came to power was because of Operation Car Wash, which was initiated by the CIA. Now, keep in mind, Lolo de Silva, uh, who was a, a candidate at one point, uh, was in prison. The reason why he was in prison is because, in part, because the CIA recognized that with Lula da Silva, you know, candidacy, he was assured to win. And so, therefore, he had to be neutralized. So what happened was they made us some bonus, bonus charges around corruption. They essentially, you know, put him in prison. And everybody in Brazil knows that, including the thing, Bolsonaro. Now, one thing, too, Brother Africa, I think we have to talk about when we talk about neoliberalism. And when we talk about the question in terms of austerity as it exists, you know, you know throughout the world, and when we talk about neoliberalism or austerity, essentially what we're talking about is private ownership. Why is it that in a country like the United States uh, and Brazil, uh, you have a situation where people continue to talk about giving everything to private individuals? Things that are once owned by the government is now being given to private individuals to ensure that private individuals obtain more wealth. And in the process of them obtaining more wealth, more injustice uh, will be suffered by the masses of people. Also, it would be the, 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 the irony in terms of, you know, uh, when we talk about austerity, when we talk about Brazil and the United States, one of the things also we talk about the question in terms of destruction of Social Security. Now, one of the things that Trump was adamant about when prior to becoming president was that he talked about the fact in terms of, you know, you know, uh, you know limiting Social Security. Uh, you know, he talked about that prior to him being president. Now he's president. He's talking about totally eliminating Social Security. He's simply finding a way in terms of eliminating Social Security. Well, the thing is that in terms of how you eliminate Social Security, it's, it's, it's a strategic game. 
One of the ways in which they do in the U.S. is give huge tax breaks to the wealthy and the corporations. Essentially, what you do is you're bleeding the economy. Which you, in other words, you're bankrupting the economy. If the economy is bankrupt and the government on the state and federal level are desperate for money, it means that Social Security can no longer be affordable. People don't understand that when they talk about huge tax cuts for wealthy people and corporations, they don't understand it's part of a strategy to ultimately to end Social Security. Also, last thing, brother, after the terms of transfer of wealth, uh, one of the things, you know, um, they get, want you to believe that, you know, give, you know, transferring the wealth to the wealthy is a good thing for society. Clearly, when you talk about transfer of wealth, um, both in the U.S. and Brazil, clearly we talk about a small number of people increasingly, you know, who have access to large amounts of wealth. But unfortunately, this wealth never trickles down to the masses folks. And the question is why? Well, it's clear. Well, this, 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 this giveaway to the wealthy had nothing to do in terms of what's better for the economy. This is what's better for an interest of the ruling class. And people have to understand that fundamentally. So when people tell you that the transfer of wealth is a good thing for society, then you should understand that what they're really telling you is that this is the way we transfer wealth to the most powerful people and that the life of ordinary citizens is not important. Now, one other thing, Brother Afton, let me just close with this. I think it's important to understand when we talk about the relationship between the U.S. And, 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 and Brazil, keep in mind, this relationship, you know, has, has, a monetary, has monetary value. In other words, the U.S. ensured that Bolsonaro was elected because they knew he would implement policies, austerity policies, which would make it possible for wealthy people in the United States and corporations to invest in Brazil, making more and more money. And so, therefore, the interest of the masses of people, whether it be in Brazil or the United States, is not, not germane. What is important is that the wealthy be connected, those individuals who have power, that they have an opportunity in terms of capitalizing, you know, by Brazilian policy that make it possible for them to make tons and tons, billions and billions of dollars. So this whole game that they play in terms of austerity, excuse me, neoliberalism, austerity, the game that they play, has nothing to do in terms of, you know, uh, revitalizing the economy. It's a game that they perpetuate. It's all about transferring wealth fundamentally from the poorest people in society to the wealthiest people in society. And given that reality in terms of spread between the have and the have nots, poor people, working class people, have to begin to understand that what they're telling you, in essence, what they're saying to you, is that your days are numbered. In other words, you don't have access to food, access to shelter, access to education, those things that human beings need to thrive. If you don't have access to those things, then what they're telling you is that your death is desirable. And I don't think people even get that. They simply accept that they're miserable and they're in pain, but they don't understand the connection between neoliberalism and their, their, life, their daily lives. So clearly this, this, this notion in terms of popping up Bolsonaro is all about, you know, um, you know, maximizing the possibility for wealthy people and corporations to make billions upon billions of dollars at the expense of the Brazilian people. And Brother Moses, when you look at what's going on in Brazil, you can see it's clearly there's a coordination um, when you talk about international. Um, you look at the international capitalist system, imperialism, they coordinate their um, activities. Now, when you read the article, um, Brother Moses, what issues stood out the most for you? The article... Um you're referring to which article there? This one on Brazil. The one dealing with Brazil, where they want to privatize the pension plan and the resistance from the people. Brazil, millions of people right. protest. 
right. I think the largest population of Africans outside of Africa is in Brazil, I believe. Uh, uh, the need the for a non-racist government is, is immense. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, know that that uh, the government is looking out. It's not really looking out for the bass. for the vast masses of the people. Uh, they, they need a revolutionary change in Brazil government. Uh, um, I'm sorry. I, 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 um, I'm. I'm unable to talk right now. I'll, yeah, no, I'll, I'll no problem. Right. No problem. Yeah, but I, again, um, Palace, I find it real encouraging and interesting that various sectors of that country sees that it's important for them organized as a group when you talk about the homeless worker movement. Now, what are the conditions that call that to come into play? And what made the homeless worker movement come into existence? You have the landless workers movement. I just think that's really interesting and it's positive in that, in that sense. And at some point in time, um, I would like to think you'll begin to see something like this similar happening in the U.S. Um, is that feasible or possible? Or are there are other forces playing, is playing in the U.S. that will prevent these kind of sectors from coming together and organizing organize themselves for their own self-interest uh, panelists? Do you see the same uh, kind of coming together of different sectors like in Brazil that taking place in the U.S. after, Brother Haki, your response? Brother I don't Hackey. see it taking place immediately. I think it's something to, I think it's a goal to shoot towards, but because of the racism and chauvinism that exists in the U.S., that works against that kind of uh, coming together. And also the labor movement in the U.S. is a lot weaker, in, uh, you know, from what, uh, from what I've read than what it is in Brazil. Because uh, you do have a relatively uh, robust left wing in Brazil, which is how uh, Lula da Silva was, a, was uh, used to be president of Brazil. And uh, he led a, a relatively progressive government, which is why they, the, uh, the, the CIA engaged in all kinds of mechanizations to remove him from power and to have him imprisoned. So I think, I, think, I think it would be possible, but I think a couple of things get in the way. The biggest being racism and also the fact and also the weakness of uh, the labor movement inside inside the U.S., uh, I think I read somewhere where where most U.S. workers do not belong to, to unions at all, do not belong to any sort of labor organization. So 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 really uh, so really we, uh, the the labor uh, laborers in the U.S. are more disorganized, and that's not, they may be may be the most dis- disorganized. Of any group of workers in the world, uh, because you, which is why you don't you don't see the actions that you see in Brazil or going on in France, 
which is not getting any media coverage in the, in, in the U.S. by the way anymore. But um, but and that's because uh, the corporate media, you know, serves the interests of the ruling class inside the U.S. So there's a lot that's not known, and this works against the workers in the U.S. drawing lessons from what's going on in other parts of the world. Yeah, well, you know, I I I think brother brother Africa, you know, um, it certainly would be great. If we could put aside all the secretary, sectarian concerns uh, around political line and work together in terms of overthrow—I mean, of getting rid of this crazy capitalist system—but that's 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 all theoretical. Uh, the problem is this: uh, one of the things, is, you know, as, as you know, when we talk about the course of trying to bring about, you know, a, a better way of life, uh, a more humane existence, we got to understand that there are people in positions of power who are quite comfortable with the way things are, and they're not going to give that up. And so, therefore, they're constantly innovating strategies. Uh, and keep in mind, they have access to lots and lots of money, and they have access to the media. And, in fact, they control the media. So, therefore, they're in a, they're in a key position in terms of ensuring that uh, um, ignorance proliferates. And as long as ignorance proliferates, the possibility in terms of people getting together and creating movements uh, becomes very, very difficult to do. And also keep in mind, also when we talk about billionaires in terms of the U.S., one of the things that they're very good at, and that is that they create, you know, um, you know, um, all kind of identity movements. And, and what I say identity movements, essentially what I'm talking about is, that, for instance, they'll talk about one deals with, say, gay rights. Uh, one deals with, say, um, the, the horror treatment of women. Uh, one deals with, uh, say, uh, the right of animals. One deals with whatever. But you get the point. It's that all these all these things tend to distract and they tend to divide. So people are focused on their individual concerns and not understand the reality is we talk about the primary contradiction, which is the capitalism. And so people don't even get to that point to even understand capitalism is the primary problem. And they are mind these 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 issues, these very um uh, uh very peripheral issues, you know, whether it be, you know, animal I'm not, I'm not saying that, that you know taking care of animals is a bad thing. That's a good thing, but in terms of if you if you weigh it against the needs of human beings, then clearly I think if you have to prioritize, and certainly the needs of human beings have to come before the animals. But I think that when people get hooked up to these you know identity politics and start focusing on their own individual concerns, they never get to a point where they begin to see that the primary contradiction is capitalism. So all these problems when we talk about animals uh, being abused, when we talk about women being abused, or we talk about of people being discriminated against because of their sexuality. All these things are quite impossible of reflection of a result of a capitalist system. So if you've got the capitalist system, all of these things that we, we struggle around will simply dissipate. Certainly the opportunity in terms of dealing with these issues become much more germane, much more possible. So, so I think for that reason, I think, you know, given the power of the media in this society, it's very difficult for us to even get to that point. Well, then that conditions, see, the thing is that one thing is clear, Brother Africa, the conditions in society will continue to deteriorate. That's no question about that. That's no question about that. That's it's going to deteriorate because one of the things when we talk about in terms of you know um, the, the the transfer of wealth, you know from the poorest people to the wealthiest people, it does have repercussions. And those repercussions is that you create a lot of people who are who are angry, a lot of people who are bitter, a lot of people who just want to strike out. So as a consequence of this anger and this business, you have people who are actually going around 
killing poor, other poor people out of frustration. And the common thread here is that you, you talk about ignorance has been facilitated by the, by the corporate media in which these people don't even realize that killing poor people could never address the issues or the concerns that you have. That in order for you to, to have a job, in order for you to have health care, in order for you to have quality education, those things can only be only a government can, can deliver. And without a government under control of the people, for the people, by the people, then those things are simply not possible. So killing poor people could never address those issues that you're faced with. But nonetheless, given the power of the media and people uh, and people's fixation on the media, they they're the driver's seat in terms of convincing people, you know, that uh, whatever media finds as important, that was in the minds of so many people, that's what comes becomes important. So now we talk about gay rights. Now, gay rights ten years ago was you know wasn't it was one of those issues in which the media fought against. Now today, gay rights are uh, probably leading leading the pack in terms of of areas of concern for the citizenry, you know, in this country. And the question is, so why gay, why does gay rights trump the rights of human beings uh, 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 in terms of, you know, injustices that are inflicted upon them? Why is that the, the, the discrimination against gay people more more prominent than discrimination against whole groups of people based upon ethnicity or skin color? So clearly we do, those issues are very difficult to, 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 very difficult to get at because the thing is that it, it, it requires that people begin to understand the nature of the beast and begin to see capitalism for what it is. So when you have people talking about the greatness of capitalism, then clearly you're talking about people who don't even understand how capitalism exists, how it works. And because they don't understand how it works, they're much more apt to support it, not even understanding, you know, that in fact what it does is create the misery in which you profess to endure on a day-to-day basis. So it's a very complex problem, Brother Africa. I, I would like to believe that conditions will deteriorate and folks will say, you know what, the writing for the wall, I see it. I understand what it is now. I'm going to move. I'm going to get with others, and we're going to, we're going to fight to overturn this craziness. I just don't see that happening in America. I think, I think ultimately what's going to happen is, you know, uh, which is underscored by the National Defense Authorization uh, Act, I think this whole thing in terms of what's going to happen is that the, the, whole, the whole set of incarceration of people, of particular African people, is going to take place in society. Uh, I, I, I think that in, in terms of interning, you know, large number of African people, I think that's going to be sufficient enough to terrorize the populace in which, you know, to the extent that they're, they're going to rise up, it's going to take some time if, in fact, it happens at all. So I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic, and I try not to be. I try to be optimistic. But the reality is that unless we figure out some, or figure, facilitate some kind of way in which we can control the narrative or information that gets to the people, Unless we can figure out a way to do that, then pretty much the people are at the mercy of a very powerful propaganda system, and uh, which is right now disseminating all kinds of racism, all kinds of classism, you know, all kinds of sexism, you know, for the sole purpose in terms of, you know, maintaining maintaining viability. So this is a fundamental problem that we're that we're fronting with in terms of you know addressing your question, Brother Africa. Okay, Brother Hockey, what we're gonna do right now? We're going to pause for the cause, and when we come back, we're going to talk about corruption and a realignment of U.S. policy. You listen to Africa on the moon. Internationalism, 
got London, not get your boozy. Long time ago. Long, 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 long time ago. Long time ago. Africa mountain on the carry sheets. Long time ago. We day sheeting that big, big hole. Long time ago. Long, 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 long time ago. Long time ago. Long, 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 long time ago. Long time ago. Before them come first us the way as slaves. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa Moves. You're looking to listen to Fila. We're talking about the international thief and making that transition. We're going to talk about this article that was titled Corruption, Toolage and Realignment of U.S. Policy. And it's a real interesting um, article because one of the things that it, 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 it addresses is what happens to those who align themselves with these international thieves like the U.S. government and their plans doesn't work out and how they may deal with you. So when you read this article, panelists, it raised the question of these so-called... Um, Plotters who are trying to overthrow the Maduro government, they are beginning to realize that they don't have the skills, they don't have they don't have the makeup, they don't have the means to do what they need. Now they're talking about turning on them. Um, Brother Hakti, when you read this article, you know it, it reminds me of a slogan by I think it was Robert Kennedy, where he used to say, "He who rides the tiger back often ends up inside the room." Look like this may happen with the forces inside of Venezuela right now. What you think? Yeah, well, I, I think that yeah, I, I think one of the things is that um, you know um, it's very clear that when they talk when they start promoting um, this guy uh, Wado, you know, as the interim president of Venezuela, then clearly they didn't have a plan. I mean, sort of knee jerk response in terms of a desire in terms of overthrowing the government of. Uh, of Venezuela without necessarily having a, a plan in, 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 in a, a plan in, 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 uh, in motion. So I think to, to, to some extent, you know, um, you know, it sort of underscores, you know, just how disorganized America was in terms of the design, in terms of overthrowing the Venezuelan government. Normally when they engage in this kind of activity in terms of overthrowing government, it's much more organized. If, for instance, we look at Brazil in terms of the election of uh, Bolsonaro, Included it much more organized, much more tempered, much more precise in terms of strategy, in terms of how they're going to actually achieve that. I think in, in a situation pertaining to uh, to uh, Venezuela, I think the position was that Venezuela was a backwards country, and therefore no real thought was needed in terms of overthrowing it. Well, they they misjudged the the, the courageousness of the the the, uh, the acumen, the intelligence of the Venezuelan leadership, and in the process got caught with their pants down. But aside from that, Brother Africa, you know, I think one of the things, you know, I think, um, you know, when we talk about Venezuela, um, you know, one one of the things is that, you know, uh, the individuals they have to 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 to, to embrace, and some of those corrupt individuals they happen to embrace. Unfortunately, a lot of them were very very corrupt, and so therefore they're they're focused not necessarily in terms of strategically or systematically how you go about. You know, going about you know corrupt you know corrupting Venezuela and ultimately taking over. Their focus was in terms of how how they can gain access to large sums of dollars, and so therefore they saw an opportunity in terms of making money. 
And so, therefore, because their interest wasn't necessarily in line with the interest of the United States, it's created a great deal of confusion. I, I think that there's a situation in Colombia where we actually actually spending large sums of money for the sole purpose of ultimately this humanitarian aid with so-called Venezuelans in Colombia. But in reality, what it was is money is geared toward organizing an army in Colombia to, to take on, to go into Venezuela to, to implement, uh, you know, a takeover of Venezuela. Well, that didn't happen because essentially what happened with the money, the money was stolen. Why don't the rest of these people stole all that money? So it, it became a real problem in terms of, in terms of U.S. carrying out its policies. Now the U.S. is in a position in which, you know, what do we do? Aside from the stone-cold corruption of these criminals that they backed, it's also the problem in terms of they're so corrupt, they're fighting over each other for, 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 for power and wealth. And so, therefore, there is no real organization, no, no, no real uh, uh, mind, there's no real connection in terms of desire to, you know, to bring about, you know, re, you know uh, destruction of Venezuelan government, simply because the priority for them is more, is not so much, you know, the overthrow of Venezuela as it is about personal empowerment and wealth. So clearly, you know, uh, it creates problems for the United States in terms of, in terms of, you know, its, 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 its goals and aspirations. And as a consequence, I think, what's happening in other Africa is that the U.S. realized that you're wasting all these hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and you're not getting any traction whatsoever. And so down now what's happening is that you find less talk out of Washington in terms of, you know, uh, in, in invading Venezuela, and you find, you, find, you find less, right, not only you find less talk in terms of invading Venezuela, but you find more talk in terms of punishing countries they actually support in Venezuela. So clearly... You know the U.S. You know, uh, you know, uh, made a big error in terms of desire, in terms of overdoing Venezuela. So I, so I think that um, the, uh, I, I, I think the, the, the Washington consensus learned a very valuable lesson in terms of overdoing countries. And uh, one thing, and I'm not happy about saying this, I think one of the things that was going to do is compel them to go back to the board, so they're going to be better prepared for the next time they try to overthrow a country. Uh, but now I'm just hoping that whatever country they decide to attempt to overthrow, that the country be equally as prepared as Venezuela to defeat you know, any U.S. Uh, uh, endeavors to, to overthrow uh, that society. You know, Brother Anthony, one of the things I, um, I see that consistent in terms of U.S. policy when it comes to the countries down south is that they definitely have an attitude that these countries belong to them. Um, in this article, it talks about how they all can create or have already created the um, scenario that they would shape all these countries under the idea that they are incapable of running government themselves, so therefore they need others to oversee them and govern them. Your response to that attitude and what you also took from this article that uh that attitude has existed since Pax Americana uh going back to the days when the US dominated uh central uh central and south america and the caribbean up until you know uh uh, uh the uh, the uh the culmination of the cuban revolution which uh which put an end to that hegemony but uh but the thing about it though but the thing about it, though the US uh the US uh leader political leadership has always been very arrogant in terms of the, they have that too that the whole western hemisphere is his backyard 
and that it, it is steadfastly opposed to any other ideas that are opposed to that narrative, which is why they were so ruthless with the uh, Grenadian Revolution, for example, because it represented an, a, a, an ideological threat to U.S. hegemony, even a larger ideological threat than the Cuban Revolution did because it was an, uh, Grenada is an English-speaking country. But uh, back, uh, but back to the points in this article. Uh, the U.S. doesn't feel that, uh, that 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 the people in these countries can govern themselves, according uh, according to the in the U.S. line. So they need some sort of uh, supervision, even if indirect. It has to be indirect because uh, direct colonization is too costly. And uh, and, uh, and and the mass of the people would not go for it. And but 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 that is the but it's this attitude why you have the situations that exist in most of the Caribbean, like Haiti, uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, and uh, South and, and Central America. Uh, you know you have uh, you know neocolonialism is rife. With the exception of a few places such as Venezuela, Bolivia, and uh, Cuba, but you know, but the thing about the but the the struggle has to intensify, and uh, and the way to pre- prevent this from happening is for people to become more educated and rely on more sources of information than the corporate media. You know, brother Moses. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, brother Haki. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just, I was just thinking. You know, one of the things, you know, and we, we talk about these these puppets that they use, uh, you know, carry out U.S. policy. Uh, one of the biggest puppets in the world is Louis Almagro. Uh, this guy represents all the nation of American states. Uh, even though there's a, a minority of states um, support the United States, most oppose U.S. intervention in Venezuela. But nonetheless, uh, when we talk about the kind of corruption in terms of having access to dollars, Lewis Almagro position was very clear on you know U.S. intervention in Venezuela. He was banking on not only in- intervention in Venezuela, but actually the U.S. has total control in- over the Venezuelan economy, which means that the opportunity for him to make tons and tons of money was was, was very very evident. Also, this question in terms of you know one of the things that, that we, we we have to we have to you know, we have to deal with the elephant in the room. And that is, when we talk about these Central and South American states, we have to talk about the role of racism. Because clearly a lot of these individuals who support the United States government, ironically, most of them tend to be, um, as they say, um, look look like Spaniards. So it's very, very interesting in terms of, you know, this, 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 this paradigm that exists, you know, among those people, you know, with lighter skin, who position is that somehow they are not, of, of you know of uh, the the Central South American makeup, but somehow phenotypically somehow different than they are based upon their light skin color. So clearly, you know, um, you know this guy Louis Armstrong, um, you know he's uh, he's he's corrupt to the bone. I mean, this guy has a long history in terms of fomenting you know uh, racism. He's always been about you know it's all about the lighter skinned uh, Central and South Americans, you know, just his control. He he believes that wholeheartedly. This notion that he's a Spaniard is something that he deeply believes in. 
Uh, so clearly, you know, this kind of uh, this kind of mindset in terms of you know this desire in terms of implementing you know uh, you know this, this colonial status on Central and South American states exists only in part because of this notion in terms of you know uh, one race being dominant over another race. So I, I think that um, you know we, we we can't talk about what the U.S. doing without talking about those states in the organization American states who are complicitous in terms of supporting the U.S. in terms of not only uh, its endeavors when it comes to trying to destroy Venezuela, but also in terms of the attacks on Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, and so forth. So clearly, uh, you know the situation that uh, the, the people confront in the, in Central America, you know, is a very, very grim one. And uh, thanks to people like Luis Almagro you know, uh, it won't get any easier. You know, Brother Moses and others can weigh in on this. When I read this article, when we take this, look at this article, it talks about the contradiction among these puppets where they talk about so many of them would like to acquire the position of being president of Venezuela. Well, how is that any different from how things are playing out inside the United States when you look at the number of candidates that's been run, want to run, is running for the presidency of the United States at this point in time. Yeah, the president of the United States. Uh, what do we got? Well, they, I guess they've narrowed it down to ten Democrats now. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe including the president, maybe four Republicans. Uh, just potentially, uh, if they don't suspend the primaries and all that. The Republicans. Uh, uh, I don't see the difference. I see the same contradiction. I just wonder how you how you saw it. But go ahead. The main, the the, the, the there's no fundamental class interest difference in the in terms of the the two parties. I mean, they both represent the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, and and. Uh, and and they've they've consistently uh thrown the Palestinians under the bus and uh and I don't see anything changing. I mean I mean as far as I can see. I'll leave it. Good, good, good. And I don't see any, any Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want I would like to see, have you elaborate on the same point. I just thought it was very ironic how they attack the situation of these the puppets. They all want to be president, and you got the puppets on this end, same thing. What is the difference between the two narratives? Go ahead, Brother Anthony. There isn't much difference. Uh, the difference is, it, it, you know, is only in terms of the nationalities of the of the of the people involved. Uh, I think I think the the motivation of having so many candidates running for the same, same position is uh, hunger for power. You have these indivi- uh, you, you know, uh, capitalism functions on individualism, and you have a lot of individuals that have um, that 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 want that want to want to be the head person in charge, so to speak. And uh, it's about power, prestige, and money. And I think that's why you have so many candidates in the field who who are saying basically the same thing in, in different ways. And so it's pretty much, uh, you, uh, you're correct, Brother Africa, it's pretty much the same phenomenon going on. 
It's just that, you know, just that you have, uh, you know, individuals vying for their own self-interest. You respond, Brother Haki? No, I agree. I agree with uh, I agree with uh, both uh, Brother Robert, Brother Moses, and, and Brother Anthony. Uh, you know, it is essentially it's a class issue. Uh, clearly, the desire uh, to gain those positions of leadership in, in Venezuela has nothing to, to do with terms of aspirations of uh, the Venezuelan people. It has to do with personal gain, and it speaks values in terms of the kind of people that are drawn to power. And one of the things is that when someone wants to become a head of state knowing that in terms of systematically that you're limited in terms of what you can achieve. And clearly for that individual, the, the question in terms of uh, justice is not a question at all. For them, it comes down to self-endowment. It's what can I get out of the deal? It has nothing to do in terms of what I can do for the people. Because they understand, quite frankly, that when you talk about a system which is geared toward the enrichment you know, of, of the many against the few, and clearly understand that being part of the few means that they have access to lots and lots of wealth. And that is their motivation. And that applies to both in the United States and Venezuela and throughout the world. And this is a fundamental problem in terms of leadership. Because the kind of people that you want in positions of power in terms of bringing about real redress in society are people who often uh, are not interested in terms of pursuing you know, power on the state level because they realize they pursue power on the state level it's somewhat um, uh, uh, disadvantageous toward actually achieving uh, those things in which the masses of people need in those countries. So I think that people who, who are revolutionary have no desire in terms of becoming heads of state because they realize becoming head of state doesn't mean that you're going to do, ain't going to do anything in terms of empowering people because they understand that the reality is that if you're given a system, you're, 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 you're actually limited in terms of what you can do in the first place. I'm reminded for the fact that Barack Obama, uh, President of the States, when he was a community organizer, as he say, in Chicago, and he talked about all these great things he can do once he become President of the States. But it's very, very interesting that it's a situation where uh, they roughed up this professor in front of his own house at the Harvard University. Uh, and when, he, when Obama said that was the most stupid thing he ever heard of, well, he, when once the, the, the right wing, once the elite attacked him, he backed up very, very quickly. So now if he can't even take a principal stand in terms of acknowledging that the police act very stupidly, you know, by arresting a man from his own house, if he if he can't stand by that, then seriously, do you really think he's going to talk about in terms of the nature of, of, of why socialism is so important in society? Not only that, but even talk about the fact that we already have socialism in America, it's, it's, you know, but we just don't want to acknowledge that. Uh, we talk about, you know, you know give, providing wealth to wealthy people. It's nothing but socialism. We talk about building the roads. It's nothing but socialism. When we talk about Medicaid, Social Security, it's all socialism. When, when we talk about, you know, access, you know, to the recreation of universities and the materials, it's socialism. It's taking resources from some to give the others to make things possible for the broader world society. That's what socialism is. If you seriously think Barack Obama, one iota will act for one minute, will actually stand up and say, hey, Cut the nonsense. We have socialism already. So what's wrong with having socialism that empowers the masses of folks in society? That simply won't happen because his focus has nothing to do in terms of the aspiration of the masses of people, but it has more to do with personal gain. And like all politicians throughout the world, with the exception of, of I got to give it to China, I got to give it to the Cubans, I got to give it to Nicaraguans. They're the only, only, only countries in the world I know of 
to actually stand up and try to foment or create policy, formulate policy, which is in the best interest of their people. Those are the only three countries I know about. If anyone else knows any other countries that does that, by all means, please let me know. Those are the only countries I know on the planet, Cuba, China, and Nicaragua, the only three countries where politicians are actually trying to empower the masses of folks who try to create institutions and systems in place to ensure that the people give what they need to, to make it possible for people to achieve the best of their ability. Only three countries in the entire world. Uh, you know, as much as I my, – my, well, I'll close with that, brother. I'll be talking all day. Anyway, I'll close with that. Yeah. I'll be talking all day. Go ahead. I would add Bolivia to that list, too, brother. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Evil Morales, yes. Evil Morales. Thank you, thank you brother Anthony. Yeah, Evo Morales. Yeah, he, he definitely he's definitely doing a hell of a job in terms of I mean he's taking a principal stand and he's one of the few people to criticize the US. He's one of the few in the world to criticize the US. And he understands, you know, his situation is precarious. He understands that criticizing the US, hey, they don't like to be criticized. And he does understand that always a possibility he'll be assassinated. But he stands on principle. And so for somebody like Evo Morales Man, I tell you, he's a, he's a great human being. You know, you got to respect him. I mean, you got to admire him. You got to respect him for the stand that he takes. And you're absolutely correct. He, in the, he's one of the four countries in the world was actually, you know, innovating systems which are in the best interests of their people, best interests of humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, panelists, in closing out on this article, uh, made by Mr. Point, and looking for some clarity, when you look at the title, it talks about realignment of U.S. policy. Where's the realignment here? I don't see any realignment. What, how do y'all arrive at what is this issue of realignment? U.S. US is realignment with what or with whom? Well, what realignment, in other words, the U.S. wants, what, what the U.S. wants to do is they want to be able to directly control the mm-hmm. uh, the affairs of the countries in Central and South America and the Caribbean, they but they can't, and uh, and the main reason for that is because um, uh, let's see, in other words, in other words, they uh, by realignment they they want to be able to directly control like they did in the old days of uh, colonialism and settler colonialism. But that's not possible anymore because, uh, uh, if nothing else, most of most of these countries, except for a few islands in the Caribbean, do have uh, you know at least sham independence. And uh, so, uh, you know, as Nkrumah pointed out, you know, direct colonization is not possible. And. Um, and uh and uh US expenditures on its military uh let's see are, are like three quarters of a uh, 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 of a trillion dollars. It would skyrocket if they t- if they tried to do uh to do that. And at the same time, you know, uh continue to support Zionism. So uh you know, so uh I think realignment means uh more direct control. In the uh, in, in the governmental affairs of these countries to suit the interests of the U.S. ruling class. I sort of see. I sort of see the realignment question has having more to do with compelling the U.S. to to go back to the drawing board. 
clearly they're, they're, they're attempt in terms of, you know, you know, destroying Venezuela and taking over didn't succeed. And so, therefore, the relationship with, with countries, particularly those countries that are favorable or, or responsive uh, to, to U.S. pressures, I think they're going to step back and say, reevaluate in terms of relationships, in terms of what they can do to improve, uh, to make it uh, uh, possible that these countries would uh, do even more in terms of advancing U.S. interests. So I think the realignment has to do with the fact that they failed, and so, therefore, they have to reconsider in terms of strategies they use in terms of going about um, overthrowing countries around the world. So I think that's the realignment because I think it has implications not just, you know, for the Western Hemisphere but also for the Eastern Hemisphere, the question in terms of how do you overthrow countries, you know, uh, in the East. Of course, the strategies they utilize to overthrow uh, countries in, in the East are quite different than the strategies they use to overthrow countries in the West, even though there are some measures in which they can utilize equally. For the most part, uh, when you talk about Eastern and Western uh, regions of the world, the cultures are, are quite different in terms of, you know, the peoples. Uh, and so, therefore, it calls for unique strategies based upon the people that you're trying to, to, to overthrow because you have to understand the people that you're trying to overthrow. So I think the East poses different challenges in terms of how you go about overthrowing, how do you come about overthrowing, you know, uh, people, you know, in, Eastern, in the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, one of the biggest problems for, for the U.S. in terms of one of the things they'd like to do, they would love to overthrow China. But one of the things that the, the current Secretary of State um, talked about, he talked about the fact that, uh, you know, corrupting these people is very, very difficult. <laughs> you know, he, he said it. He said corrupting these people is very, very difficult. Uh, he talked about the fact that, you know, that normally, you know, you could, you know, it's so easy to bribe folks to get, to get your way. But he said, but it's not working in China. And so he talked about the fact that, you know, these Chinese, these, the leadership of Chinese are incorruptible. And so the problem is that, so how do you gain Leeway. How do you gain access to China leadership if they're incorruptible? You can't. So clearly, you know, the question in terms of the U.S. is, you know, what can we do in terms of infiltrating China in terms of forcing us to adapt our way of doing things? Uh, it's a problem for them. And also, you know, throughout, throughout the Asian world, it's a problem in terms of how you infiltrate Asian countries in terms of making them do what you want to do. Even the Philippines, even the, the, uh, the president of the Philippines, Duterte, I think that's how I pronounce his name. Duterte, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even he, even he understands. He said his position was that the United States is, is, is a has-been. It's done. You know what I mean? And he don't want, he don't want your help. He, he told you he don't want your help. You know what I'm saying? He said, really, but I can help you. He said, but I don't need your help. He said, because you don't bring any solutions to the problems that we're going to find. You only bring problems. And so for the United States, that's problematic. Well, here it is, a, 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 one, of the biggest, one of the most important clientele for them, because keep in mind, in terms of the desire, in terms of, you know, him and in China, it needs the Philippines, you know, be an active member in terms of, you know, you know keeping China in check. Well, the, the president of the Philippines said, no, 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 China is, China is my friend. I work with China. You know, you, U.S., you're not my friend. I don't care anything about you, so go away. Well, that calls for realignment, Brother Africans. Question is, damn, what can we do now, now that, you know, we got this Philippine president talking about some, he have no design terms of working with us, now what do we do? Well, it's back to the drawing board. It's, well, how do we figure out what can we do? Do we assassinate Duterte? Uh, you know, uh, do we strangle his economy? What do we do in terms of punishing these guys? Because no matter what they do, this guy's very outspoken. He is a bit crazy, which is good. I think in the political arena, in terms of international politics, it's going to be a little crazy. I certainly wish more African leaders were crazy, 
you know, and, and, and stop playing ball and become a little crazy. So this guy, uh, Duterte, is, he's, he's, you know, he's a little crazy. And so though he speaks what he feels, but it causes the United States to, to re- reassess the kind of things they do in terms of bringing about, you know, uh, their uh, control, you know, over foreign nations. You know, panelists, let's just um, take a stage break, and when we come back, we're going to have our final thoughts for tonight. As it relates to our theme tonight, part three, hell no, we are not down with that. You listen to Africa on the Moon.
and nationalizing the people pensions. Or well, nobody says still it. We're not down with the corruption and the real U.S. policy as we talk about it that's taking place in this Western Hemisphere. Nor are we not down with anything that the West is doing, to be all honest, because most of everything they do are things that are things that fall under the anti-people class. So if you're in the anti-people class, you're against the people development, we're not down with that. So panelists, for tonight, we'd like to hear y'all final thoughts. Well, your final thoughts to our listening audience. So I with you, Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. While we wait for Brother Moses, let's move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. My final thought for tonight is that we must organize ourselves. Uh, we must improve and increase our level of organization as never before, and we must politically educate ourselves so that we can uh, uh, so that we can uh, work in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling against a common enemy. And Brother Anthony, for people who find out more about your organization, give them some information on how they can do that. Sure. Uh, if To find out more about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Moses, are you, are you there? Yes, um, yes. Yes, because you're um, talking to us tonight. It's, it's been, a, been a good good uh, happening tonight. Uh, I look forward to next week. Uh, um, yeah, we need to definitely, we need consciousness, political consciousness raised and uh, become more and more aware of the world around us and how we fit into it and what's, where it's going and who's doing what to us. And um, so we need as much education as possible so we can take up this task that history requires us to take up. It's inevitable that we take control of this social order and and uh, and look out for the interests of the masses, the people. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight? Yeah, a couple of things. First, African Awareness Association will be doing a solidarity tour to Cuba. This trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. More information, contact us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And my final statement, of course, is, you know, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, when, when, you know, when we, when we look at it in terms of the propensity for this this, this individual in, in power in Washington D.C. to lie, when we think about, you know, um, his, 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 ability, his ability to lie, then when we superimpose that upon the fact that you got a system which is, which is geared toward deception. It makes for a very bad combination. It seems to me that when we talk about the problems confronting human beings uh, in the society, 
it seems to me that there's, there's no possible way in terms of the system or this individual per se are in a position to actually deal with the problems that plague humanity. So given that reality, when we talk about African people in the context of America, then we got to talk about a certain amount of instability that exists, you know, in terms of our position here in the society. Given that instability, it seems to me if we don't come together, we don't organize, we don't create institutions, then how conceivably can we save our children? The children are the future. So we can't save the children. Who can we save? And of course, of course, as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because without unraveling the matrix, it's almost in difficult terms of navigating a, a path forward. And I would say that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother I.T., thank all the panelists, and thank you, the listening audience and supporters who listen, who have always been there when we needed you. What I just would like to remind you is that, remember, this is Africa on the Move. you here every Sunday from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, yes, spread the word. And just would like to remind you that, remember, as oppressed African people, the only solution is Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set our African free. On that note, let's continue to subscribe to go forward with Apple, back with Neville. We'll see you next week. And we haven't forgotten about our brothers and sisters from Palestine. we leave you with this, with this song. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word, Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love.